You're about to enter the lab of the late Dr. David Salzberg. While conducting studies on slowing the aging process, there was a catastrophic accident, and he died. <laughs> or did he? Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk podcast, posted on March 12th, 2015. I'm Steve Mursky. And that was a clip from the February 26th episode of The Big Bang Theory, titled The Intimacy Acceleration. Some of the characters are going to an attraction called an escape room, where they have to use clues to find the key to get out of the room in which the late Dr. Salzberg has turned into a zombie. You're about to enter the lab of the late Dr. David Salzberg. In real life, David Salzberg is very much alive. The show is having a little inside joke using his name. He's a UCLA physicist and the sitcom's science advisor. Scientific American is prominently featured on tonight's new episode of The Big Bang Theory. You can read a new Q&A by Rebecca Harrington with Big Bang showrunner Stephen Malaro on our website. And I also thought it was a good time to whip out an edited version of an unaired recording of the real David Salzberg from way back in 2010. He gave a talk titled The Making of the Big Bang Theory, TV Comedy Plus Accurate Science at the Communicating Science to the Public through the Performing Arts Conference held at the City University of New York's Graduate Center. The audio quality is a bit dicey, but it should be intelligible as long as you're not listening on the subway or while watching Big Bang Theory reruns. It gets better about three and a half minutes in. So without any further ado, here's the very not late Dr. David Salzberg. So I've been involved with shows since the beginning. Uh, there was actually a pilot in 2006. A pilot is what an engineer would call a prototype. They put the show together and see what works, and they take it to focus groups, and it didn't work. And often that's the end of the show, but they gave the show another chance in the second pilot, and that did work, and that's what the first episode of our first season was that pilot. Essentially, no one's ever seen the first pilot. <laughs> and that, that brings me to something which is kind of interesting that I never realized, is that comedy is an experimental science. It's a science that it's been going on for thousands of years. There's a lot of rules that the writers know. If I ever try to suggest something, there's a reason that it won't work. You know, well, if you mention that twice, you have to mention it a third time. Or if you start, that starts with the wrong letter. And an unbelievable amount of knowledge, going back to the ancient Greeks, about what works in comedy and what doesn't. And then, in the end, either the audience laughs or it doesn't. So they really experiment. Um, and when the show is taped, it's taped in front of the live studio audience. The joke doesn't work, they'll rewrite it on the spot. So in that sense, it's a bit like vaudeville. In the old days, they would write, they would put on the show every night, based on what worked, they would change the jokes. Um, and I think to some extent, uh, sitcoms and television are direct descendants of vaudeville. People who used to write for vaudeville then went to the radio, radio plays, comedies, and those people tend to move to television. And so, let me tell you a little bit about what I do in the show. So one thing is I talk to the writers and showrunners. The people that run the shows in television tend to be the writers, which is a bit different in film, where the director has most of the creative control. So the writers run the show, and for those of you that are familiar with experimental physics, a showrunner is like the PI, the principal investigator. They have sort of all of the final, they have the final responsibility. And so the writers have come to UCLA, they've met students and postdocs, business labs. Um, they need, every once in a while, I'll, I'll see something that happened during their visit. For example, uh, they're thinking about doing a scene. They, it, something I didn't think was funny, but apparently it's funny, is that when our astronomers at UCLA observe 
using the Keck telescope, which is a fantastic telescope in Hawaii, on Mauna Kea, they don't actually go. They just go across the hall to an observing room and pick up the, the phone and they look at their computer screens and talk to the people that are running the telescope. It seems perfectly normal to me. The writers thought that was really funny. So, <laughs> so that's an example of something which they picked up. Another thing, no lab coats. Physicists don't wear lab coats. And that was one of the things that uh, when Chuck Laurie returned back from his visit, he told the costumes people, no lab coats. I didn't see any lab coats. And not every lab is, is shiny and new. Um, the actors came once also to visit UCLA and then students and so forth. We had lunch. And in general, um, I go to each uh, taping. By the time it shows me tape, there actually isn't much for me to do. They almost never ask me any question. Mostly we're sort of just chatting about what might happen in some upcoming show. <coughs> I talk to people in the sets of the costumes department just to make just to make things look realistic. They'll ask um, what happened. That's kind of funny. The set designer visited several students' apartments with the first pilot. She made it very realistic. Um, and one of the reasons that pilot wasn't accepted was it was too gloomy and depressing. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I do is I get these scripts here, and this is what a script looks like. I wish I could have submitted papers in college that looked like this. These huge margins, double space, could have been done another time. Anyway, you can see uh, Leonard says, I just got home. I was up all night using the scientific equipment to come for my science to come experiment. <laughs> so this is an example of the kind of thing that I get to fill in. Sometimes they fill it in themselves. Sometimes I fill it in. And that's a case where I like to put something in that's actually realistic that's going on in science right now. So some discussion of dark matter experiments using liquid xenon. And the hope is that somebody, you know, will just Google what's going on. Um, we have about 15 million viewers each episode. Um, and it's not the same 15 million viewers each episode. So if I could, I could go out and give lectures, on public lectures on science with 100 people in them every week for 100,000 weeks to get to 10 million people. Did I get that right? So, you know, this is brief, but it's a huge audience. And people do watch television with their laptops around, and hopefully they will Google something, and that may be a chance to get the idea that there's dark matter out there. Especially if they're working on it week after week, and people do care about the characters. There's a pretty good chance people are Googling what's going on. Uh, so what else do I do? Sometimes I get the scripts, of, depending on the, on the, sometimes they'll be working on something more scientific, and I'll get the script about a month in advance, and they'll really want to know something. For example, Sheldon has marbles scattered on the floor. Why? And so we came up with a scientific idea involving a planar material called graphene that he was working on. And then during the, then things really go fast during taping week. So the, the actors see the, see the script for the first time six days before it's taped. And they run through it every day in front of the writers, and the writers modify it, and so I get a copy of the script every day, every night. And sometimes they add some science, and I want to make sure that nothing wrong has crept in. But at that point, things can't be changed too much. So, um, it's filmed in front of the live studio audience. It's not a laugh track, if you're hearing. Uh, it takes about three hours to make a 22-minute show. It's very efficient. There's about 150 people running around, very professional, doing this work. Um, there is last-minute changes. For, for example, if there's a pronunciation question, but it doesn't really ever happen. And uh, I have grad students uh, sometimes come with me visit taping called uh, the Geek of the Week. <laughs> they are. And uh, another thing that is actually very common for science advisors to have to do 
is media. So EPK stands for electronic press kit. And uh, that's not something I love doing, but it, it, it means a camera is on you, which is pretty tough. Uh, but for example, the, one of the DVD extras in season two was about the science behind the show and the making of the Big Bang Theory. And so, uh, you know, I really do like the show and want to help it out, so I do that, but I prefer not to be on camera. So what don't I do? Okay, make it really clear. I don't invent characters or develop them. I really can't. Um, I don't make stories. I don't write dialogue. And I certainly don't make jokes. I, I tried in the beginning, you know, not really knowing, being the naive guy, saying, you know, tell a joke, you know, sometimes I give them some jokes. And if you're a physicist, you go to, sometimes you go to parties and cocktail parties, chat with people, and like someone will tell you their new theory of gravity, you know, and you're kind of like, hmm, and you're sort of like holding your lip, I want this person to stop talking to me. Well, that's sort of the look they gave me when I tried to give them <laughs> jokes. So I, I quickly stopped trying to do that. So I think my, my role is more indirect, having the actors and the, and the writers visit the labs, talking to them about stories. Usually it's when I, it's something I don't think is interesting at all that they pick up on, but that's really funny. Um, and then the writers do meet other scientists through me. I try to bring someone new around all the time, and they usually mine that person for information and stories and so forth. So is there anything that can be learned from my experience there? It turns out I'm not unique. Um, there's actually scientific consultants go back probably as old as film, just about. For example, here's a study done by David Kirby. Uh, from interviewing about 50 science consultants who film and television, he categorized their ideas. And it could be anything from my experience where I'm, I'm woven into the process from the very beginning, just chatting about storing ideas, all the way through uh, final exact, getting exact dialogue, discussing with the set decorators how, how things will be done. The other hand, side, I have a friend who's a science consultant on a drama, and they're so secretive they'll only send them one or two pages of script. So he can't even help them about with other things. And it's filmed off uh, in another country to save money, so he never even goes to the sets. So you have a wide range of, of experiences. But some things are kind of the same. Like, they will, no matter how much they use you or don't use you on set or for the story, they will use the science consultant for media relations to give the stamp of approval, for example. So really, if you want to be a science consultant for a show, you better like the show because you're going to wind up standing up and, and defending it later. Here's another uh, kind of paper from different authors. Cinema is a tool for science literacy. I think I talked a little bit about that. Um, just getting a little bit of science out there, which is correct, or at least getting the words out there and having people look it up on their own uh, is something we can hope to do. Um, we just don't get these kind of numbers anywhere else. Even in a television documentary on science, you're not getting these numbers. So if we want to reach out to the rest of our citizens of our country, we have to go to where they are. And so uh, film and television is where people are. There's a whole list of, uh, you can just see that lots, lots of people are writing on this topic. It's a big uh, social science uh, field. Cinema is a tool for science literacy, the impact of science fiction on film on student understanding of science, real reality, science consultants uh, in Hollywood, and so forth. And understanding, you know, from anything from cataloging what kind of interaction, what, what does Hollywood science look like, to what is its impact on culture and on people watching it. As I said, there's about 15 million viewers each week, and not the same each week, and it's skewed young. 
Um, don't forget there's reruns as well. And then there's, I didn't even include international viewers here. So it's, it's, it's a mind-boggling number, probably, you know, in the end, it's over 100 million people seeing the show. Um, the freshman physics is correct and understandable. Um, and the modern physics is real modern physics and really cutting edge. So, you know, we had graphene in there probably before any other show had ever mentioned graphene. Um, one of my, something to give you a little hint, one of the things I really like is the search for extrasolar planets. I think, and I've also not seen that anywhere in uh, popular fiction yet. So we try to get out, get out ahead of there, ahead of people there. And there's a question about, you know, one of the things I was worried about in the beginning was, you know, was this going to uh, portray scientists in some sort of mean-spirited light? You know, and we all have that concern. It would either be too stereotypical or somehow mean. But I realize now, looking back, that um, this was not really something to be concerned about because the sitcom is a, is a highly defined uh, art form. And the ensemble really is like a family, and you have to like the characters. Even the ones that are seriously flawed, you, you have to like the characters. So uh, or won't tune, people won't tune back in. And so that's why the ultimately, uh, these are really lovable characters, and I, I run across undergrads in my university all the time, but just love Sheldon, who is you know, the most difficult person you can imagine. You couldn't live with him for 15 minutes. But somehow, he's portrayed in a way that's really empathetic. People, people love him. As far as bringing the news, so mid-season three, Sheldon had a problem, and you know the important part was the following: he had marbles on the floor, and people came in and tripped. You know, it's a comedy. That's that's all the truth you need to know. <laughs> but they wanted to have. Why was he doing it? Well, graphene is the hottest new material in uh, condensed matter physics. As I've uh, heard, it just won the Nobel Prize this month. There were more talks about graphene than any other material by far at the American Physical Society meeting. If it had not been very many people in the public had heard about graphene, which is basically a chicken wire of carbon atoms. And uh, so that's what we had him doing, was he was on, on the floor trying to understand a problem with graphene. There are teachable moments here uh, when the graphene is mentioned or dark matter. So I have a little blog called The Big Blog Theory. Um, and so, I, and I, I, so they mentioned pulsars in one episode, and I talk about Jocelyn Bell, who discovered pulsars. So every show I get a chance to, uh, and sometimes we had a backstory explaining the science that might not have been obvious, because sometimes they don't want to like, give a long description of all the science, believe it or not. <laughs> so I get to explain it in the blog. And then finally, let's conclude with a letter that we got from uh, Robin Asimov was the daughter of Isaac Asimov, who was the hero of the writers and one of my heroes. And she said, uh, the, the Big Bang Theory is delightfully witty, a brilliant mix of intelligent dialogue with comedy and absolutely spot on regarding the wonderful, cerebrally sexy world of nerds. <laughs> Discussing my father's, Isaac's, uh, three laws of robotics to a hysterical conversation among three of the cast members theorizing that one was a robot. And what he wanted to be told was priceless. Cheers to the show for making geeks truly lovable, as lovable as I um, my father to be. So they were really happy to see that. And now I'm actually done. <laughs> <laughs> I take some questions now. There's a microphone over there, so if you want to leave a question, please line up behind that microphone on the left. Hello, Sheldon works on string theory and high energy physics, and why is he so happy working in condensed matter physics? <laughs> <laughs> 
really funny because when I was giving this talk in March uh, at the Condensed Matter meeting for American Physical Science, I said, why can't those guys work on more condensed matter? <laughs> well, the, way I, the thing is that graphene has uh, a very interesting structure, um, a hexagonal structure. And it turns out that the electrons in graphene behave not according to the normal equation, the Schrodinger equation that we're used to for in materials, but the relativistic version, which is the uh, Dirac equation. And uh, interesting things happen, uh, even a friend of mine is working on that properties that we don't understand, like spin, which is the fundamental angular momentum that all particles have. It's not known where this comes from in the physical theory. Yet spin comes out in graphene. So my friend is, who works uh, in this, is, is doing some theoretical work wonders if space-time might have an hexagonal structure just like graphene. And so there is this crossover in the end. There is a connection. That's, that's I can imagine, why Sheldon is working on Australopithecus would really have been sick of us debating how we're here, they're catching deer. We're catching